Welcome, everybody. So great to have you joining us today, whether you're doing that in person or online, either way. I'm just really glad that you're here. And for those of you who have maybe been a part of Cedar Creek Church for any length of time, you know that what we like to do in the summer is to teach through a book of the Bible. We, we call it our summer book series. And so next Sunday, we're kicking off a six-week summertime journey through the New Testament book of Romans. And I'm so excited about this book study because Romans is not only one of the most interesting books in the Bible, I believe it's one of the most important and one of the most influential books of the Bible. So much of our theology, our beliefs, our doctrines come out of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And so what we're going to do is not just teach through the book on Sundays on our weekend services, but we're also going to read through the book of Romans individually. All, all of us are going to read through the book of Romans together. And so next week, we'll start putting out a, a daily reading guide. There'll be a little bit for you to read each day. It'll come out early in the morning. It'll be waiting for you when you get up. Uh, you can get it on our app. You can get it on our website. We're going to try to make it available in as many different ways as possible so that all of you can read through this truly phenomenal book from the New Testament. So I'm excited about that. I want you to plan on being a part of it because here's the thing you need to understand. The reason we do these summer book series is not just to teach you a book of the Bible, but it's also to equip you to be a self-feeder when it comes to God's Word to help you be able to read and study, and most importantly, to understand God's Word when you read it on your own. Because most of us, I mean, this is church, most of us would say, yeah, the Bible is an important book in my life. And I think many of us would say reading and studying the Bible is an important daily thing to do for our spiritual growth. But here's the thing, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, I think one of the things all of us would say is that sometimes the Bible can be hard to understand, right? How many of you have ever read a verse or a passage of the Bible and just kind of come away going, I don't get it, I don't understand? How many of you have had that experience? Yeah, most of you. Those of you that didn't raise your hands, you obviously don't understand that part in the Bible about thou shalt not lie. Because the truth is, even people who have spent their entire lives Bible scholars still struggle to understand some aspects of God's Word. But, but here's the thing that's kind of weird. The Bible, just as a text, is easy to read. I mean, most English translations of the Bible score somewhere between a sixth and seventh grade reading level. So it's easy to read and comprehend, but here's the problem. Because the Bible was written in different ancient languages, and because it was written to different ancient cultures, it's often hard to understand what the Bible means. Now, the Bible says what it means, and it means what it says, but it can be hard to interpret that meaning. That's why you hear people often arguing over interpretations of the Bible, right? 
Maybe you've heard somebody say, or maybe you've said this to somebody, well, that's your interpretation. How many of you have heard that somebody say that, right? Well, that's your interpretation. And this idea of you have your interpretation, I have my interpretation, and they're both equally valid. Now, that sounds really good, particularly in our modern culture where it's each individual can have their own truth, like you have your truth, I have my truth. You know, they're both equally true. That sounds really open-minded and magnanimous. Here's the problem. It's not true. The Bible is not open to individual interpretation. Let me say that again. The Bible is not open to individual interpretation. Now, it is open to individual application, right? You and I can both read the same verse, and the Holy Spirit will use it to give me a next step in my journey. It will... The Holy Spirit will cause you to have a next step in your journey. Totally different steps, totally different application, but the meaning is the same. And here's the problem with misinterpreting the Bible. It always, always, always leads to chaos, right? The the pages of Christian history are littered with good people doing horrible things in the name of God because of misinterpretation of Scripture, right? Middle Ages, the the Crusades, right? The the Salem witch trials. Uh, More recently, the, the Westboro Baptist Church who protested the funerals of American soldiers. You know, you got Jim Jones in Guyana and the whole Kool-Aid thing. You got David Koresh, the wacko from Waco. You got all of these different things, these chaos that came from misinterpreting the Bible. Now listen, I'm not saying if you misinterpret the Bible, you're going to end up in some kind of weird cult. But what I am saying is that when you misinterpret the Bible, it can cause you to make decisions and choices that you think are right or that feel right, but can do deep damage to your life and to the people around you. In fact, that's why the Apostle Paul writes these words to his young protege in 2 Timothy 2.15. Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed and, don't miss this, who correctly handles the word of truth. Circle that phrase, correctly handles. That's interpretation. And that's not just something that pastors and teachers and home group leaders need to be able to do. It's something that every one of us as followers of Jesus need to be able to do. And so, of course, the $64,000 question is, how do you do that? How do you correctly interpret God's word? Great question. I'm glad you asked, because that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at some rules for interpretation, basic guidelines to help you understand the meaning of God's Word. And this is the cool thing. We're not just going to look at these four rules of interpretation. We're actually going to put them into practice. We're going to take a passage of Scripture from the Gospel of John, and we're going to apply these four rules of interpretation 
to study this together. Now, those of you who've been around, you know, this is kind of different from a typical message I might preach where, you know, I take a passage or a truth and give you a couple of points and then bring it all home with a good application for you. But we're going to do a little different today. We're going to walk through a passage of Scripture and we're going to apply these four rules of interpretation. How does that sound? Sound like it might be interested, might keep you awake, hopefully. Now, the passage we're going to look at is Gospel of John chapter 15. John chapter 15. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can turn or click there. You can kind of follow along. But we're going to read this. I'm going to read it, and I want you to follow along with me. Now, since there are a lot of different English translations of the Bible, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put up the NIV version on the screens, and I want you to be able to just read with me, follow along as I read it. So let's jump in. Here it is up on the screens. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Long passage, all right, everybody awake? Somebody, if anybody's, you know, nod, give them the elbow. All right, so big passage. Here's the question. What would you say is the big idea of this passage? You know, you say, this passage is ultimately about what? How would you fill in that blank? How many of you would say this passage is about fruit, about bearing fruit in my life? Go ahead and raise your hand if you believe it's about fruit. How many of you would say, I think this passage is about remaining connected to Jesus, remaining in Jesus? Yeah, good many. How many of you would say that this passage is about love, about God's love for us? Yes. How many of you would say this passage is about answered prayer? 
No, maybe one, I saw one. Would you be surprised if I told you that while yes, this passage is about fruit, about remaining in Christ and about love, would you be surprised if I told you that ultimately this passage is about answered prayer? Now you go, wait a minute, Philip. Where did you get that from? By applying these four rules of interpretation. So let's do that. Rule number one, consider the context. Consider the context, right? Because the, the words of the Bible were not written in a vacuum. These are real words written to real people by real people. And so context is critical. Anytime you read a passage of scripture, you need to ask yourself, who wrote it? Who are they writing it to? Why did they write it? When did they write it? What was going on not only in a historical context, but what was going on in their individual lives? Because all words are best understood in their context, right? I'll give you an example. What if I were to say Cedar Creek Church is on fire? What do I mean by that? Depends on the context, right? If I'm up here talking about how God is moving and working and all kinds of amazing things are happening in our church, that has one meaning. But if I say, would you calmly stand up and make your way safely to the exits? That has a very different, same words, different context changes the meaning. Now listen to me. The number one cause of misinterpretation, the number one cause is reading or studying a verse out of context. See, we often pull out individual verses and cherry pick verses and then use that verse to convince us of what we want God to say rather than looking at the context and understand what God actually is saying. Great example of this in this passage in verse six. Look at what it says. Again, Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. That verse by itself, it's easy to read that and assume that Jesus is saying, look, if you disconnect, if you drift away from me, if you don't stay close to me, you're going to burn in hell. In fact, I have heard way too many times to count pastors and Bible teachers cherry-picking that one verse out of this passage and using it to convince people if they mess up, they're going to hell. Problem with that interpretation is it's wrong. It doesn't fit the context. So you need to understand John chapter 15 it's part of a long conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. You know, they gathered in that upper room. Jesus knows what's going to happen to him and what that's going to mean to them. They're going to be facing all kinds of difficulties. And so this conversation starts all the way back in chapter 13. And the purpose of this conversation is to comfort and encourage his disciples because he knows what they're about to face. That, that's why in verse 13, he, in chapter 13, he washes their feet. Yes, to give them example of how they are to love, but also to show them that they are truly loved by him. And then in chapter 14, he says those wonderful words, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, 
believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And then he starts talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go away. You're not going to see me, but you're not going to be alone. The Comforter, the Holy Spirit, is going to come and guide you and lead you. So what are the chances in the middle of this long conversation meant to comfort and encourage the disciples that Jesus would stop and just go, oh yeah, and by the way, if you get this wrong, you're going to hell. Right? It doesn't make sense because it doesn't fit the context. So why did he say it? Because at the end of chapter 14, Jesus is saying, look, I'm leaving. You guys are staying here. You've got a purpose. You've got a mission. You've got to keep on going. And if you get off that purpose, you're going to miss out on what you were created for. Right? See, that's the thing. What are branches created for? To bear fruit. When they don't bear fruit, they get used, they continue to be used, just not for their intended purpose. Here's what I'm trying to say. A text without context leads to a pretext. A text without context leads to a pretext. You always have to start by considering the context. Rule number two, you got to define key words to define key words. Because it's critical when you're studying the Bible to make sure you know what the word means, not what you think it means. Because words have multiple meanings, right? One word can have multiple meanings. I'll give you an example. Weed, right? What is weed? Some of you are thinking about the stuff you gotta pull up out of your flower bed. Some of you are thinking about a very different weed. And if that's you, that's a whole nother message and a whole nother thing, right? One word, two meanings. Batter. What does that make you? Th- Some of you are thinking college baseball world series. Some of you are thinking about a cake, right? One word, multiple meanings. And see, this is one of the issues we have as English speakers and studying and understanding the Bible because the English language vocabulary is much smaller than the ancient Greek and Hebrew that the Bible was written in, right? You've heard me talk about this, right? In English, we have one word for love. I love Terry, my wife. I love Taco Bell. Same word, but it better have two different meanings, right? Or I'm gonna need a place to stay tonight. Well, that happens often. We have a very limited language. That's why I recommend when you read and study the Bible to use multiple English translations to help you do that. Look at the passage in different translations because I don't believe any single English translation can encompass all that God means in his word. One example of this in this particular passage is the Greek word for fire. When Jesus said these branches will be thrown into the fire, There's two different Greek words for fire. One is the word Hades, which is always used to describe the eternal fires of hell. The other Greek word for fire is the word poor, the Greek word poor, which literally means like a a fire with sticks, like a cooking fire or a campfire. Guess which one John chose to use in verse six? The word poor. Right Now, don't you think if John, who was sitting there listening to Jesus talk, and if John thought Jesus was talking about the fires of hell, don't you think he would have used the word Hades? 
instead of the word poor. Why? That's the importance of understanding the true meaning of the word. Now, you are, how do I do that, Philip? How do I know what the, the original Greek or Hebrew word is? Well, you got two options. One, you can invest a lot of money over the next five to seven years, go to seminary and study ancient Greek and Hebrew, or you just go online and find a Bible dictionary. There are tons of Bible dictionaries that will tell you what the English word is. Probably the best one is something called Strong's Concordance. Strong's like this, but it's the man's name, the last name of the man that wrote it. And you don't have to go out and buy a book. There's some great online resources. One that I put there is something called blueletterbible.org. That is a great website. You pull it up, you put in any verse, pick whatever English translation you want, and it will pull up and show you word by word what the Greek or the Hebrew word was and what the definition is. It'll even tell you how to pronounce it. See, when I talk to you guys about Greek and Hebrew words, you think it's because I've been to seminary and I got all this knowledge. No, it's not. I got blueletterbible.org. I just look this stuff up and you can do it too. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes even the Greek and Hebrew words can have multiple meanings. You can have a Greek or Hebrew word that can have multiple meanings. One in this passage is the word fruit. Fruit's a big part of this passage. It appears nine times in those 17 verses. But it also appears 45 different times in the New Testament. Same word, but when you read it in the context, 10 different meanings, right? Sometimes fruit just means fruit, like a grape or an apple. Sometimes fruit means the, the nature of something. Sometimes fruit is used to describe a person's character, the choices or decisions they make. Sometimes fruit is used to describe a financial offering, like Paul talks about the fruit of the offering that the churches gave to him for his ministry. Same word, multiple meanings. So what does fruit mean in this passage? Well, you might just assume it means your character choices, doing the right thing, but that assumption might lead you to a wrong understanding. So what do you do when the meaning is not crystal clear? You go to rule number three, and that's interpret unclear verses with clear ones. Interpret unclear verses with clear ones. Now, obviously, there are some passages of Scripture that, seem, or that are unclear. Even if you know the context, even if you know the original word, they can still be unclear. But there are many, many, many more verses that are clear. And the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So in this passage, while there's no clear definition of fruit, right, Jesus doesn't stop and say, and by the way, guys, when I say bear fruit, I'm talking specifically about this. There's no clear definition of truth, but there are three very clear verses about truth. So let's look at those clear verses. The first one is verse four. Jesus says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. What's clear about fruit in that verse? That fruit comes from what? What would you put in that blank? Remaining in Jesus, right? You would remain in, it's clear, right? He says it like three times. You gotta be remaining in me. You gotta be connected to me. You gotta be in the vine. That's clear. Second clear verse, verse eight. 
Jesus says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciple. So what's clear about fruit in that verse is that fruit brings glory to who? God. Put that in there. Fruit brings glory to God. This ain't rocket science, folks. Verse 11, another clear verse. Jesus says, I have told you this. And by the way, that this, if you look at the context, all the stuff he's told them about fruit. I've told you all this about fruit so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So what's clear about fruit is that fruit brings joy to my life, right? Not rocket science, very clear verses that give us a clearer picture, a better understanding of what Jesus means by fruit. Now, we still don't exactly know what Jesus meant when he said fruit, but we know where fruit comes from, and we know what fruit does in our lives. And that leads us to the fourth rule of interpretation, and that is to look for the most obvious meaning, to look for the most obvious meaning. See, one of the biggest mistakes we make when it comes to interpreting the Bible is we think we have to look for these hidden meanings, right? There's some secret code, some kind of math formula, right? That, that I, I, look, I, I read Dan Brown and I go to those movies and they're entertaining, but that's just about making money for Dan Brown. That is not about biblical truth, you know? There's not all these secret hidden codes. It's not true. Think of it this way. God gave us his word to reveal himself to us. That's the purpose. And then he personally made sure that his word was transmitted orally until language came along. Then it was written down. He made sure that it all got written down and then preserved it for thousands and thousands of years. Preserved it in the ancient culture Right, The writings of these little former fishermen from nowhere in Nazareth, right? That all of this got preserved and was available to us today. Why would God go to all that trouble and then hide his meaning in some sort of secret codes or things that you have to figure out, right? So what's most obvious about fruit in this passage? What is most obvious about fruit? Let's look at a couple other verses because I think they'll help us. Verse seven, Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What does that verse tell me? That remaining in Jesus produces answered prayer. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? If you remain in me, my word's in you, ask whatever you want, it will be done. Pray and God will answer. So remaining in Jesus produces answered prayer. Now let's look at John 14, 13. Now look, different chapter, same conversation, right? So we're not breaking the context rule. Jesus said, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the son. What does that tell me? That answered prayer brings glory to God. Not only does answered prayer come from remaining in Jesus, but answered prayer, when I ask, it brings glory to God. All right, let's look at another passage, John 16, 24. Again, different chapter, same conversation, still in context. 
Jesus says, until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you receive, and your joy will be complete. What does that tell me? That answered prayer gives me complete joy. Now, you see a pattern there? Anybody catching on? Let me help you. Look back at number three. Look back at point number three. Do you see the three things we learned about fruit? That it gives us complete joy, that it gives glory to God, and that it comes from remaining in Jesus? And we just saw that is also true of answered prayer. Asking in prayer gives complete joy, brings glory to God, and comes from remaining in Jesus. So bottom line, I bear fruit by asking in prayer. I bear fruit by asking in prayer. So you see the importance of applying these rules to a passage? to consider the context, to truly define the words, to use clear verses to help you understand unclear verses, and to look for the most obvious meaning. And when I do that, here's the thing, it leads me to not some secret hidden principle. You know what it does when I apply these rules? It leads me to the unchanging promises of God unchanging promises that I can cling to no matter what the external results or circumstances are, right? Because you read that passage, particularly when you read Jesus say, ask whatever you want in my name, it'll be done, right? And we think, okay, I want a million dollars. Okay, I want you to make my child better. I want to have better health, right? We just start asking all of these things and we forget that the purpose of asking in prayer is not for God to fix all of our external temporary circumstances. It's to draw us closer to him. It's to give him glory. We pray in his name, in keeping with his will, his spirit, his word. God is not your genie in the bottle. God's way bigger than that and you're just not quite that important. I mean, I don't mean to diminish who you are. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. God has a purpose and a plan. But the world was not created for your glory. It was created for God's glory. And we have the privilege of being a part of that. And so when you ask in prayer, ask big for God's glory. I think so many of us are looking for $1,000 answers to 10-cent prayers. Ask God for the big stuff the important stuff, not the temporary little comforts. Ask God to move in mighty ways. Ask God to to bring his kingdom come for his will to be done. Now look, I know if you're like me, you often pray and it feels like nobody's answering. It's like your prayer is like an email that disappears out in cyberspace. And you keep praying and God seems silent. Uh, We've all been there, but here's the promise we just learned today. You can cling to, keep praying, even if you don't see results. Even if those results are years down the road. Maybe the answer's gonna come long after you're gone from this earth. Or, Or maybe God's gonna use that prayer to change you without changing your circumstances. But here's what you can know that you know that you know, that if you'll keep asking, 
You'll keep praying God-sized prayers. It's gonna bring complete joy into your life. It's going to give glory to God and it's gonna keep you connected to the vine and keep you from being burned up, not in hellfire, but being burned up and wasted by missing your purpose in life. Now here's the thing, no Bible study is complete without application. It's an interesting exercise, I hope you learned something, but no Bible study is complete without putting it into practice. God did not give us his word for our information, He gave it to us for our transformation. So let's do that. Let's apply. What's a $1,000 prayer that you can ask God for? Maybe you need a miracle in your marriage. That for your marriage to survive, God's gonna have to show up in an amazing way. Maybe it is with your health. You're dealing with an issue and the doctors have gotten to the end of their rope. And you just want to say, God, I don't know, heal me, do something. I can't keep going this way. Or maybe you're praying for a prodigal and you've been praying for years. God, call them home, bring them in, bring that prodigal home and nothing ever changes. Keep praying because that's what bears fruit. Fruit for God's glory. Fruit that keeps you desperate before the throne of God and fruit that draws you close to Jesus. So, what do you need to ask God for? What do you need to put in that blank space on your outline? Put a word, put an initial, put a sentence, or just put dot, 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 because Philip has too much to even write down. But whatever it is, let's pray and ask God right now. Wherever you are, online, on one of our campuses, just bow your head, close your eyes, no distractions. What do you need to ask God for? I'm not talking about now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. I'm talking about what are you desperate for God to do? For his glory, for his will. What fruit do you need to see him bring forth in your life? Just cry out to him right where you are. Father, I thank you that you hear our desperate cries, that you hear every prayer, that you hear every wish, every dream, every desire. And I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would help us have faith to keep praying, to keep remaining connected in you, even when we're not getting the fruit we thought we should get from that prayer. God, because you are the faithful gardener. Maybe you're pruning us now so that somewhere down the road we can bear much fruit. Or or maybe you're doing things and we just can't see it and it's gonna happen somewhere else at some other time. Oh, but God, give us the faith to be faithful in asking in your name, in your will, and for your glory, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen.